Did you guys hear the news? It's unbelievable. It's amazing. I can't believe. It's just shocking and stunning. Three cans of soup for the price of two? It's crazy. It's a wild, wild time we all live in. Just absolutely bananas. Can't believe all the stuff that's going on in the world. And that's why I'm so thankful to be here with you guys, answering your writing, publishing, and editing questions, while also just, I don't know, trying to do something nice for the world. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I'm a little early, which is fine. I'm still getting all my ducks in a row. Uh, if you listened to yesterday's workshop, I believe I owe you an apology. I believe that you deserve better. So if you're looking for a better version, a redo, take two, a better sequel, jump over to johnhelpsyouwritebetter.substack.com right now. Sign up. It's free. And you will get the six customers you should know workshop written out as this coming week's writer's secret weapon. Um, it's better in text. It's a little bit more confident. It's a little bit better organized. And frankly, you definitely deserve better than me fumbling my way through that 40, is it 50 minutes video? I didn't do so great yesterday. You deserve better for me. And I'm sorry I wasn't better. I don't know how else to say it. I think I did an okay job when I wanted to do an extraordinary job, which is why we're here today to do better. This is going to be a good one. There are some great questions, some technical stuff, some interesting stuff, and I'm super excited. Let's, let's get started, shall we? All right. Just remember what I've taught you. Well, here we go. First of all, if you have no idea who I am or what this is, this is the Writer's Chat, and I, through no fault of my own, continue to be John, the guy who's going to help you write better. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, makers, doers, dreamers, plotters, enthusiasts, photo takers, bird watchers, stamp collectors, hobbyists, passionates, creatives, physicists, theorists, moviegoers, soup drinkers, spoon collectors, old lady saviors, pit bull lovers, cat lovers, jello enthusiasts, kinky friends, wild friends, spicy friends, any kind of service personnel, and most importantly, the comrades. Welcome to the Writer's Chat for August the 15th. This one's good. I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy to be doing this. It's been a hell of a day. And I think we all deserve some joy. I think we all deserve some 
good answers to good questions. So we all leave here feeling a bit more rejuvenated, a bit more creative, a bit more happy and hopeful with the world. So how about we get started with 13 questions from all across social media, asked by all different kinds of people, 13 absolute bangers in some shuffled order where I'm going to do my best to help you write better. One question at a time, no bad questions, no stupid questions. And if you're watching this right now, hi, Twitch chat, or if you're watching this in the future, hello, YouTube chat, and you have questions at any time, feel free either here in Twitch chat right there in front of me, I'm pointing to the screen like you can see it. Or if you're watching on YouTube down in the YouTube comments below, leave your questions. I double super promise you they get answered often obsessively. So ask your questions. I want to help you write better. And the best way we do that is by answering whatever is on your mind. Let's get started. No bad questions. Here we, here we go, right? We're, we're good. We're going to, we're going to do this. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. No bad questions. Question number one, which is better an action beat or a discovery beat to open chapter one. Okay. You know what I said about bad questions? Uh, come on now. There's a school of thought that says that there's a right, I'm making air quotes, a right kind of way to start chapter one, because chapter one, they'll say in the same line of thinking has a responsibility to grab the reader, whomever the fuck the reader is, grab them and demand their attention and hold them and really like make them care about the book as if it's the best thing since sliced bread. And, um, it's not like, it's just not, it's just a book. It's, it's not going to save the world. It's going to be influential. It's going to move and affect people, but it's not the be all end all. It's a book, not the book. And this, this fascination, this concept that there's a certain way to always do it, a universal one size fits all approach. Um, well, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't exist. There is no one single best way to start every book. There is no one best single way to start this genre or start that genre. It's not like all mystery novels need to start with dialogue or all fantasy stories need to start with a description of like the trees and the rocks and the traffic and weather on the eights. It just, it just doesn't need to do any of that. There's no, there's no extra value. You're not doing it right. You don't score cool points. It's just, you know, not a thing. If you want to start with an action beat, you are going to suggest a level of pacing and maintenance that should be expected throughout the course of the story. And maybe that's a breakneck pace. Maybe that's too hard a pace. Maybe you're not looking to be so aggressive up front because you want to slow things down, control the flow of story a little bit better. Maybe you know that once we get through chapter one, we've got this long info dump coming from the wizard in our fantasy novel. So maybe we don't necessarily want to open hard with an action beat. But a discovery beat isn't necessarily is isn't exactly better for that kind of thing because that that movement and uncovering of information might be too slow. Maybe we need to shift to an emotional beat where characters are having feelings about something so we can develop some context. Maybe we need to move to a dialogue beat so we can get a sense of who's going to do what over the course of the story. Maybe we need to get into an investigatory beat where somebody's doing something and engaging something that they didn't previously know. There are 
loads of different ways to start a story. Some are going to be better than others, but not because of their beat. It's not because, oh, well, you've picked the discovery beat, you've ruined your story. It's because of the context you either have created or failed to create, or it's because of the utility or the way you've sort of painted yourself in a corner. If you start a really strong, aggressive action scene up front, but then like the next chapter the beats over and we have to like hard crash six months later, we lose all that momentum you built. If we have a dialogue beat and it's all snarky, everybody sounds like Chevy Chase in the 80s or Ryan Reynolds now, well, then the expectation is that the story really isn't going to move because you're too busy and too enamored with talking. Not every beat is a good fit for the way you want to tell the story because how you picture it in your head is what we're trying to get across. And sometimes that means, yeah, we have to be critical about how you want to get it across because not everybody's got great instincts up front, especially in first drafts. So I can't tell you that an action beat is always better than a discovery beat or that a discovery beat is always the best way to go because it's just not. It doesn't work like that. Figure out what kind of emotion, what kind of feeling you want to give the reader within the first, let's say, three pages of writing. Something. There has not, not information. We don't need to sit there and bore them with the history of two fucking trees. We want to give them a feeling. What feeling can we create for them? And then what thing needs to happen or what words need to hit the page in order to produce that feeling for other people? That's how you want to open your story. We want them to feel tense. We want them to feel worried. We want them to feel, ooh, creepy. Something. What organization of ideas can get us there? That's what we're aiming for. That's what's going to tell you what kind of beat to use. It's a great question, despite it being not a great question. All right. On we go to question number two. Question number two. How can I avoid a large battle climax in a fantasy novel? Large battle, for those listening to the podcast version of this, Large battle is in quotes because large battle is a trope for climaxes. Large battles are like Lord of the Rings level stuff where there's the army over here and the army over there and they run at each other on a field. Large battles are inherently boring because they require the, the sort of organization of equal but disparate information. There's a million armies and you don't want to get bogged down in the detail of like, here's six guys, here are four guys, here's three guys over there. Hey, there's a dude with a horse. Like, you don't want to stop and account for everybody. It's not a counting exercise. We want to avoid the large battle because only, how do I say this? The bigger the battle, the less the specific actions matter and, the, and more the end result matters. When we're watching Return of the King, the fact that orcs and people are pretty evenly matched and all of a sudden we care when the ghosts show up, spoiler for a movie from like 20 years ago, um, when the ghosts show up, it's a big collective action that tips the scales. Small things get lost in a large battle unless, unless we're following one character all the way through, no matter what, no deviation whatsoever. Because of our small scope, we get to have a sense that their small actions matter. But when we zoom out and we're just following the army versus the other army, you kind of lose that sense. So you want to avoid that climax or avoid that structure of your climax 
by making sure that how you've set the story up prior to the climax, because in order to solve a climax problem, generally you don't need to rewrite the climax. You need to go back and look at the second act. You need to go look and see how the, the plot started, because that's going to tell you exactly what the climax is going to be. Because if your plot, if your plot is set around a conflict, like the, the king tells their lowliest court jester that uh, the jester has to get away with murder, the climax is dealing with the actual people involved who want to do the murder. Like it's a, it's a major tremendous kind of moment for everything. And we want to make that really feel material. We want to make that feel like it really has weight. So in order to do that, we keep the scope of our character and our point of view smaller than Oh my God, it's the whole army from the country of blah, 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 Istan against the country of blah, 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 Istan. And the, the sneeches and the snooches don't have to turn around and battle each other for whatever reason. Keep your focus smaller and it'll be a heck of a lot easier to shape and move your fantasy novel. The large battle is, I mean, it's not the end of the world. If you use one, you don't lose cool points. You don't get in trouble. No one's going to come and take your keyboard away, but it's tired. We can do better. We can do more. You have so many other options, so many better, different ways to tell this story. Please consider using one of them. On we go to question three. Question number three. Why is there such a stigma around love interests or secondary characters with troubled backstories? Oh boy. Okay. Um, we, we know what we're talking about, right? We all understand what we're, we're talking about. The, the biker with the stubble and the secret past. We're talking about the, the ranch hand who's got something to, you know, something he feels deep inside. He really loves poetry or butts or something. We're talking about like somebody who's the stoic, who's really faced a lot of trauma and they're not ready to process their feelings until that one moment where all of a sudden everything's different. That kind of uh, setup, whether we're talking about romantic contexts or mystery contexts or um, really any kind of context, the reason why there's a stigma around that is because it is lazy. It is super lazy because it forces a confrontation. It forces a beat. So if I'm the main character and I'm in or supposed to be in some relationship with somebody and I need that relationship to have tension. I'm a primary character looking for a love interest in my story. One of the best ways to guarantee that there's going to be tension in this relationship to make it not the most boring thing on the page is to give one of those two characters, either me as main character or them as secondary character, give them something that will cause tension, a terrible secret, a dangerous past, you know, hunky body parts. Ooh, they're very curvy. Oh, they're very muscular, whatever it might be. When we set up these troubled backstories, there's not really a whole lot new we're doing here. Nobody's reinventing the wheel on troubled backstories. Somebody's got a parent that didn't love them. There was an abusive situation, a traumatic situation, maybe some violence, maybe some threats, maybe some worry, and they're going to get minimized for what they are. You know, you, you have so many romance novels that write very cavalierly about how, like, an, a, an adult man abused a small child in one way or the other, 
And then we just sort of brush it off because we want to transition to the moment where the character's like, oh my God, I didn't know. Let's totally have sex about it. And that's not really accurate because if you're going to sit down and reveal something incredibly vulnerable to people, sometimes a lot of characters aren't taking their pants off for it. Like bad manipulation of dynamics is the reason why stigma persists in the story. You've written yourself that you only have this way out. You only have this conclusion. And the reason why you're producing a character like that is not because you have something to say about the nature of child abuse or because you have the nature of like, I had to kill a man in self-defense or whatever it might be. You're not saying anything significant about that. You're just looking for a way to give a character who is otherwise fairly forgettable some or what you think is some defining characteristic. Do you know how many like love interests are built around the fact that they have just a terrible secret and maybe like some mode of transportation, whether it's the, the stoic cowboy on a horse or the bad biker or, you know, the teen no one likes at lunch has a bicycle. Like, do you know how utility and solely utility those characters can be? They exist only to serve a function and then get the fuck out of the way. Like, do you know how common that is? You know how badly that gets handled? It's stunning how just generic these things become after a while and the terrible troubled backstory gets just minimized and laughed off, not laughed off in the sense of like, ha ha, it's so funny, but minimized and laughed off as if it's not something more significant than it really is. And I don't think that, let's say romance writers need to sit down and have these lengthy treatises with their characters as they walk through the merits of therapy or something. But at the same time, you can sidestep this whole pile of nonsense by giving your love interest, by giving your secondary character, whomever they might be, something more than just a defining characteristic that is, I had bad stuff in my past. Now I'm trying to do better. Why not spend more time on the doing better and less on the why I have to do better? Why not just talk about the guilt or the shame, but never the activity specifically? Yes, there's going to be some percentage of some amount of readers somewhere who's going to ask, well, why? Why do they feel guilty? You don't have to answer that. You, you can be patient. You can delay giving the dog the treat or the cat, the little, you know, chewy thing. You can, you can be a big person and withhold the marshmallow test in order to not answer literally every single one of their demands. The stigma exists because people tend to find the most generic way of taking the most shocking, horrible thing and making it kind of very little different from like, yeah, I wear blue jeans. What about it? Yeah, I got, you know, my old man was a drunk. He knocked us all around. I also wear blue jeans and I don't like sandals with socks on. Those things are not equitable. Those things are not the same. But the way that we regard secondary character construction, we make them the same. And that's a huge disservice. That is such a problem. Don't do that. Do better. Let's kill this stigma. On we go. Now, I notice, because normally this is the spot where I go, hey, does anybody have any questions? But I notice that right now, there's nobody here but me. So let me take this moment, just quickly and quietly, to point out, hey, if you like this stuff, if you like me answering questions, if you want to dig deep into what makes a better story or what tools you can use to affect 
your work or get started or get moving, or you wanted to figure out why, I don't know, the what we can learn from across the spider verse or what we can learn from a few good men or King Kong, or unfortunately the twilight movies. If you're looking for more tools for your writer toolbox, please, 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 please consider going over to patreon.com slash John helps you write better and sign up for a free trial. There's a week free trial. You can take a week free trial at $2. Doesn't matter. And just see what it's about. See what tools I offer every week. There's tons. And see if you like it. It gives you access to an exclusive community of writers where people actually are, you know, trying to get published. They ask more questions every day. They get inside advice, fast track help. They get discounts on editing. They get all different kinds of things generally not covered in chat. Patreon.com slash John helps you write better. It will be worth your time. Shall we move on? Keep going? Let's go. Question number four. What's the point of a newsletter if I'm active on Discord? First of all, good job being active on Discord. Second of all, Discord and newsletters are two different things, very different things, and not just because they're on different websites or whatever. Discord, for the most part, is a closed community. And even if you own it or operate it yourself, you still have to kind of control the turnstile to let someone in. You still have to give out the invite code. And the likelihood of people discovering a Discord is much lower than someone discovering a newsletter that you can get from a pop-up on a website or a social media post. Yes, you can still put the Discord invite link in both, but Discords are thought to be communities that are insular and insulated. We hang out over here. There are little like table of friends, whether that's the Algonquin round table or our lunch table of high schoolers, it doesn't really matter. But Discord is thought to be a small community of semi-active people, but that activity verges on a balance between the casual and the professional. It's very hard to kind of peel people away from that activity-inactivity balance. A newsletter is more focused. A newsletter is unidirectional. You say stuff to people. And it guarantees that you're saying stuff and that it will be at least received. You can't always guarantee that somebody will like read it and go, aha, that's what I was looking for. Let me click links. Let me do something. You can't force that to happen, but you can at least guarantee that, especially in an active discord, your statement won't get lost in the shuffle. I'm a member of several active communities for several things I support, whether they're organizations or streamers or YouTubers or whatever. And I feel completely intimidated because there's hundreds, if not thousands of people, and they are all very active. They all know each other. They all talk to each other. They have ongoing stuff. And I often feel like me asking a benign question like, hey, does anybody have uh, something on so-and-so? I will just get completely dwarfed. Whereas with a newsletter, I have something to say. Hey, does anybody have a copy of such and such and so-and-so? And I know it will go out and I know it's more likely that someone will receive it and do something about it. It's about controlling 
the dissemination of information. It's about controlling the broadcast. Discord is nice. It's active. But if you're doing that to the exclusion of a newsletter, you are speaking to a closed group because if your Discord doesn't regularly grow, like let's say it's you and five friends, after you tell those five other people, hey, you can go buy my book, they're not going to buy it twice. They're, they're not. They bought it once and they're done. Whereas a newsletter, sure, you might get those same five people on a newsletter and they might buy it once and be done, but you can grow a newsletter differently and faster and easier than you can grow a Discord. A newsletter is one way and you can guarantee the information goes out. Discord is an ongoing conversation. It has different values and different utility. It's allowing you to set up a different social construct. You can't always guarantee that it gets heard. And from what I have seen, Discord is more about receiving, gathering people in one place, giving them a chance to do what, you know, whatever. Versus a newsletter, which is more active, more pointed and more targeted. It's about level of activity as well. A Discord's fairly passive. You don't really, it's, it's hard to motivate a hundred people, 10 people, 35 people towards a singular goal and get them all doing it at the same time. Whereas a newsletter you can guarantee goes out at a scheduled time and, a, and hits a certain number of people and maybe they'll engage with it and maybe they won't. It's more binary as opposed to being up in the air. Also, just because you're active on Discord doesn't mean you're growing your, your client, not client, your community, whether they be clients or regular people or whomever else. Um, just being active and doing a lot of chatting doesn't guarantee that everybody's up on the fact that you're making a thing or how far it is or when it's selling or anything like that. You still have to talk about that stuff. Discord's just a place to do that talking. It's not the same thing. On we go. Question five. I love kinds of questions like this. Help me write a pitch for a dystopic high fantasy novel where the king is dead and the story isn't about a royal power vacuum. Now, that's an example. There is no actual book. I don't have a client writing this, so I, I don't have a lot of extra information that's specific. We can just make it up for the sake of this example. So let's make it up. We don't want to talk about a royal power vacuum. That's, that's a pretty easy thing to talk about because all of a sudden we make it about princes or queens or this or that or the other, and we're telling a very like political kind of story. Excuse me, a political kind of story. It's, it's not... It's not bad, but we've seen it all before. Let's tell about a different way. So the king dies. What happens to the power structure or social structure in a monarchy when the king dies? Who gets affected? Loads of different people. Everybody, presumably, but they're all going to get affected differently. Now, we could take a slightly intellectually lazy approach here and say, this is an MPOV novel. We're going to cover three different people at three different tiers of society. Let's talk about what a prince goes through, what a guild tradesman goes through, and what a, what a serf goes through, right? Three levels of typical monarchistic hierarchy and high fantasy. And that way, we're, we don't really have to be responsible for any opinion. We don't really have to work very hard to try and make any character distinct because we can just stick to these three basics and softball our approach to our view on monarchy. And if we're not going to make it about a power vacuum, then we're going to talk about probably look, we're going to look for sources of conflict. So if there's the king is dead, does the kingdom fall into disrepair? Does the kingdom fall into decline? Are there enemies at the gates? 
if there are enemies at the gates, where can we, we have to find a source of tension. We have to find a thing that's a problem. Cause if we're not doing a Royal power vacuum, the death of the King isn't the source of conflict. It's just a, it's just a, a condition on our fantasy kingdom in the same way. Like it's winter and snowing is a condition or there's not enough food for everyone. That's a condition. If we're not making it the center point, it's just an extra element. So we're talking power struggle. We're talking dynamic tension. We're talking something at some way, and we're going to try and do this in a way that makes it the most engaging possible. So for me, that's a character with the greatest amount of potential room to grow or room to be affected. Now, in, if we're going for like dull as dishwater bullshit fantasy, we're going to say there's a serf who's really a secret nobleman. Like they're the the illegitimate son, and it's not about the royal power vacuum, but they're, they're, they ascend to the throne in generations to come, yawn, stretch, blah, 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 blah. I'm bored already even thinking about it. So I don't want to go that route. But I do want to look for a character that has the most utility and the most possible way to go. Who can I get the most story out of? Who has the most tension? Who has the most to gain or lose? Not really a serf. Serfs didn't have anything. But guildsmen, people in the, in the burgeoning and developing middle class who, you know, were developing a level of commerce and transactionality with things. Ah, well, now maybe all of a sudden we can do something about it. Because if the king is dead, let's look at problems that happens when the king dies. So if the king dies, tax collection is probably a problem. So what happens to a person who doesn't have to give up their tax money? All of a sudden now we've got some stored wealth. But if I'm hoarding wealth because I don't have to pay my taxes, does that make me available for burglary? Does that make me a candidate for greater tradesman danger? Will my competition, the, the shop across the street, see this moment as a chance for them to profit as much as me and it becomes this sort of battle between two shops? Will one of us have to hire the Assassin's Guild to go take out the other merchant? All of a sudden, the king being dead is a non-factor. The king might as well not even be in the story because we are finding ways to develop tension outside of the king existing or not existing. And the fact that it's dystopic means we get to scale and skew this pitch or scale and skew this story. Cause I'm writing this pitch cold, um, scale and skew the story in such a way to make the stakes pretty intense. So we might build a pitch for a dystopic high fantasy novel. Like, uh, let's set the condition first. Following the death of King Steve, sure, why not? Following the death of King Steve, the kingdom of Steve land uh, is thrown into absolute chaos at all levels, but no, no one person feels it more than the guy, uh, let's name him Tim. Uh, no one feels it more than Tim, the merchant who most recently sold the king very fancy pillows in this story of, uh, incredible danger, risk, and middle-class commerce, a pillow merchant goes up against a whole city when they believe him to have murdered the king. Uh, my story, uh, 300 dead count. Cause it's thread count. It's a fucking pun. Uh, will be available in the fall. See link for pre-order. You want to take, when you build your pitch, you want to look for different ways to generate tension and conflict. 
And then you want to use the conditions that cause the tension and conflict to better frame the pitch around it. So the king died. Great. We're going to include the dead king in our story. Then we're going to set up a way to introduce our character because we need to have a pitch focused around somebody or something. And it's not about the death of the king, whatever. So we got to focus it on a character. So we need to figure out a way to tie and thread all these pieces together. The condition that caused the problem, a person suffering from the problem and what they have to deal with. Character, stakes, causes. That's a great way to build a pitch. Character, stake, and causes. Character, stake, and emotion. Plot, character, and danger. Loads of different sets of three things can come together for a pitch. The thing you want to avoid with a pitch is just giving factual information. Something like character, world, and plot status doesn't tell us anything. King Steve of Steveland is dead. This snowy kingdom falls into decline. What's going to happen to the merchant class is not an exciting pitch. It's just a set of statements. We want to find a way to organize and orient the pitch around tension, around something dynamic, around something that's going to make us question stuff. That's that's how we build a stronger pitch, whether we're talking fantasy novel or detective novel or romance novel or sci-fi novel with lasers and ninjas and bears from space. Doesn't matter. Find the piece of tension and build your pitch around it. It's going to go a lot easier for you. And it's going to give you, it's going to help answer that question of like, well, what do I write my pitch about? Tension. That's what you write your pitch about. Okay. On we go. Question six. Why are more and more writing blogs promoting a quote writer diet? Writer diets in quotes. Uh, they don't mean a writer diet like you should read these books and not read those books. They mean diet like consume these calories, human. Put more of this food in your body. Drink more of these beverages, whatever that might be. Um, the reason why they're doing that, it's pretty straightforward and it has nothing to do with wanting to see you like lose weight or anything. They're trying to sell you product, probably through Amazon affiliate links, probably linking you to like health and beauty aids or food, excuse me, or uh, something like that, because they get a cut. If you go click and they, you know, they tell you that, well, writers generally tend to feel stressed. And one of the best ways to treat stress is by vitamin B12, or they stay inside. So they need more vitamin D and they'll link you to places you can buy vitamin D or vitamin B capsules or something. And then they'll get a cut. Their writer diet is not a sign of deep compassion for your health or nutrition. It's an opportunity to sell you stuff. And the reason why blogs are doing it is because of SEO. They're just looking to grow a budget. They're just looking to make some sales. They don't care if you eat more kale or not. Maybe somebody does at some level, but the sales are, the, the offers, the promotions are happening because they want sales. We'll put it that way. That's all. It's no great, like, kindness. It's just transactions. It's just capitalism. It's a real pain in the ass to read, that's for sure. Shall we keep going? Are there any questions from anybody here while I put water in my face so that I don't lose my voice in the middle of the next question? Good. Okay. Okay. 
Hi, it's good to see you. Thank you for being here. I'm, I'm very good. Thank you. Um, certainly better than yesterday. You have a question. Fire away. Give me those questions. Let's go. You ask all the questions you want. That's how this works. I love questions. Many months ago, you spoke about different character dialogue being measured in syllables. I did. That's, are you asking to say more words about that? Should I just, I'll, should I just explain the concept of measuring in syllables? Okay. We'll measure in syllables. Every, could I speak more about it? Absolutely. Here we go. Every character and what it's called, please. Like the concept, uh, the concept is just dialogue cadence or dialogue construction or um, dialogue expression. That's sort of like the big class, like the big umbrella dialogue expression. Expression is how words come across around somebody's face to somebody else. Um, and that includes things like gestures. That includes like the, the, the way they move their bodies. That includes stuff like the adverbs to describe how something is being said. It describes the punctuation. Like, do we use a lot of exclamation points? Do we just use periods? Do we just have a lot of dot, dot, dots, whatever. Expression is the big umbrella under which all this stuff ha is, is considered or counted. And one of the ways you track how a character speaks is by building their sort of voice. So the way they sound, this is called character voice, as opposed to narrative voice or authorial voice. We've talked about those before. This is character voice. This is how does this character sound that's different than how that character sounds. And one of the ways we do that, other than giving them different vocabularies or giving them different points of view, we look at how they construct sentences. Now, we're going to assume for the sake of this example that all the characters are speaking the same language, because if not, we also have to add that in the mix. I want to try and keep this example pretty straightforward, but let's assume all our characters are speaking the same language and all the characters are speaking the same language with the same level of fluency and familiarity. So maybe they're all adults who speak the language without a problem. Just for the sake of the example, of course, if things are different, you have to factor those things in. But when we are trying to figure out how a character sounds, we want to look at their sentence construction. Because how I speak is different than how you speak. Not, because, not only because one of us may or may not swear the other person has an accent, or that one of us or the other of us has a different sound to our voice. I have a deeper voice than you do, for instance. Um, something like that. But we also construct sentences differently. I tend to use the word so or like or um a lot because, or I use the phrase, you know, because, you know, this is how I sound. Whereas someone else might come across in a much more uh, polished, organized, tuck my shirt in, try not to curse so much way because, you know, they're a dork who deserves to be shoved into a locker. I don't know. But we take a look at how they construct sentences, which means how you write the sentences. Let's be clear. These are people who live, exist, they exist in your brain. So you get to think about how this character communicates with the world, not just the words, but the organization of those words. So let's do a very simple example. There's a difference between a character saying, 
yeah, question mark, and another character saying, oh, yeah, question mark, and not just because we're adding an O in there. It's because that addition of that other syllable gives us a chance to give the reader a way to hear it differently. Yeah versus yeah versus yeah versus oh yeah or oh yeah or oh yeah. And that's not just a matter of punctuation because I don't need to put a period between those two things to split it up or a comma between the two of them. I can just put them next to each other on a line. That level of thinking doesn't happen enough for a lot of people in a first draft. And it's fine. This is far more of like a, I'm doing a second draft kind of thing. Why? Because most of the time people are just trying to get the idea out of their head in a first draft. And let's not bog them down with trying to make too strong or too fine a distinction. And I don't mean like, you know, we make our dwarves sound Scottish because that's just lazy. Or we make our gnomes or our goblins Jewish because that's both lazy and a slur. We're looking at the way characters construct sentences. So when character X talks and they're saying whatever they're saying about whatever the fuck they're saying, you've written it in such a way that we can count the number of words and we can count the kinds of words. Like, are they using big giant words? Are they using a lot of fancy language? Or are they speaking very simply? Are they asking more questions than they're, you know, saying more declarative statements? When we count syllables, syllables are just the ways we break up words, parts of words. So when we count syllables, we get an average of how someone speaks. I, uh, if I'm not on microphone, if I'm not recording a podcast or a stream or something, I tend to speak fairly quickly because I'm nervous which means you're going to get a lot of syllables coming out of my face, which means you're going to hear a lot of information come very quickly, which means the way I speak, certain letters, certain sounds are going to be highlighted more than others. I tend to drag my S's. I tend to hit my D's and T's pretty hard, hard enough to make at least the voice meter pop on my microphone because that's my natural speaking voice. That's my natural accent. That's how I communicate with the fucking world. I also tend to turn my wits into wits because that's where I grew up. You count your syllables and you pay attention to that language and you pay attention to that language construction because that's how you distinguish one character from another. If I were going to sound like John, the more polished version of myself, perhaps I attended a fancy Renaissance era university. I would sound something like this, where I would choose my language more carefully, and I would look to elaborate on all the syllables, as opposed to John, who just normally sounds like this, because this is how I sound on a day-to-day basis, because this is my normal speaking voice, as opposed to the polished language wherein I take more words and I take up more space, because the visual impression of words that sound like this on a page give an impression that's a little bit different than if I said it like this. You pay attention to how the language I'm making air quotes sounds, and we measure that through syllables. So that if you want to make a distinction between how people talk, it isn't just a matter of saying one of them is going to say, um, can I get that to go? And someone else is going to say, can I get that bagged up, please? We're going to also look at, we can say the same sentence, 
but we'll say it differently based on how we construct it. Syllable construction is part of that. We measure things in syllables so that we can take a quick shorthand as to whether or not the character is saying too many words, or this doesn't sound like them. Like if you're writing and you're in the middle of revising and you, you start all of a sudden you're one character who's been very, um, let's say very outgoing and very bubbly all of a sudden without context in a scene starts like getting fewer and fewer lines or they, they just start not saying as much and you haven't substantiated a reason like the character that used to be very happy just got bad news. So they're not going to say as much without that kind of context. It just is, it's going to seem weird that the character who wouldn't shut the hell up last chapter is now saying two words, which means there's a narrative issue. Why is this character not speaking the way they used to, but also a narrative decision to make? Well, maybe they don't need to be in this chapter. Maybe they don't need to be in this conversation. If all they're going to do right now is say, yeah, or no, or something monosyllabic, because we know in the next chapter, they're going to go back to being bubbly. It's a way of understanding that how a character communicates impacts not only what the reader hears or imagines in their brain, but also how they persist or need to persist in a scene. If you've got a character who just stands there and goes, uh-huh, yeah, no, no, the entire time, what the hell are they doing in the story? Syllables are one way of tracking character movement in a story because they talk. And through that talking, we get a sense of who they are. And from the context, plus the combination of who they are and who they sound like, we can figure out whether or not something's important to them. And then we, as the reader, can attach to those characters. That's why we care about syllables in a very roundabout way. What an amazing question. Thank you for asking. Anytime. Happy to do it. My pleasure. Shall we go on? Other questions? Marching right along. Let us march. Question seven. You're going to want to take notes. I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to want to take notes. This is a technical question. What's the difference between reference and recall? Okay. This concerns, or this is dealing with an element in the story that you're bringing back up, or it could be a scene, or it could be an idea, or it could be a word or a concept. It's something of the story coming back. It can be that open-ended reference is when we mention its existence, just having it exist. We're not talking about its impact. We're not talking about something specific to it. We're just bringing it back up so that we don't forget, oh yeah, there is a grocery store down on fifth, or I just came from school and dot, dot, dot. We've referenced the school. We didn't get specific. We didn't talk about how my locker was in the middle of the A corridor. We didn't talk about how, you know, I've been going to that school for this many years and it's almost time to go to prom. Didn't talk about any of that. Reference just brings something, whatever it is, back to the awareness of the characters and therefore the reader. Reference. Super useful. You do it all the time. Recall is where we take reference and get more specific. 
you can think about it in terms of recall that dot, dot, dot. And then we, we give a fact recall is bringing up something reference, but adding context to it. So when I recall or recall, if you're a human being speaking English, if I recall that, yeah, you did come from the school and isn't it almost time for prom that must explain why you're so excited. Recall adds context that reference doesn't provide, but reference raises awareness because, oh shit, we hadn't thought about that character. We hadn't thought about, you know, like the promise to go to lunch and chat, you know, three days ago, story time, we promised we would go to lunch. It's been three days. Oh God, we have to go on a, a wacky date with two secondary characters. Reference versus recall. Why would we use them? You'd use reference because you want to bring something up that you couldn't bring up before, and you don't need to get too far into it. You just need to bring it back. Recall. We use recall when we're trying to bring something back because we have something to say about it. Hey, you promised me, and whatever the hell the promise is, that's re If we don't talk about what the promise is, it's reference. We bring up that extra burden of what it was we promised. That's recall. The difference is context. We use it so that the reader doesn't forget that we mentioned a thing. This is particularly useful for those of you out there writing big, giant fantasy novels with a lot of complicated shit in it, because you've probably loaded your reader down with a ton of things to try and reference. And then you've thought that the best way to fix that is to recall it and add more context. And that's not the case. If you're recalling too many things, it's sort of like, Asking someone to carry more and more boxes, hold this and this and this and this. And it's just a cartoon level stack of things. Don't do that. That's not great. That's not going to help anybody. There's no magic number for the amount of re uh, recall or reference to do, but there is a way of organizing it in a way that's manageable for another human being. And that sweet spot that this amount works for me in this story and maybe it'll be different in the next story comes through revision, comes through drafting, comes through practice. You have to sit down and figure it out. It is possible that your story is slowing way down because you are too busy referencing stuff to get everybody on board as if somehow spontaneously they forgot what they just read 30 pages ago. Hint, they didn't. You're just beating a dead horse. That's the difference. I love a good technical question. On we go. Question eight. Is it ever a good idea to know the air quote stats of your book? You might recall that uh, last week, more than that, there was this thing called prose craft. Prose craft was this bullshit AI scrape of stolen material that tried to create its own set of metrics for a book. They tried to describe how vivid it was or how exciting it was. Just random arbitrary things that some tech bro thought was a great idea as if everybody was going to agree to the, that bro's definition of what vivid meant or what that exciting meant or whatever the hell the stats were. The specifics don't matter. Is it ever a good idea to know those things? No, because it doesn't matter. Because do you care, honestly and truly, do you care if some guy in Chicago, some random person who's read your book, if they think your book is 10% more exciting 
than this other book they read. Does that make your writing any better? Does that encourage you to go write the next scene? Does that make you give a shit? Does that get you out of bed in the morning? Does that excite you in any way? No. At least it shouldn't because it's a non-fact. It's just sort of like, "Uh uh-huh, that's good. Cool. And then we move on from this awkward conversation. If you really positively, absolutely need to have some stat for your book, pre-publication, whether we are self-publishing or traditionally publishing, the best stat to know is your word count. Post-publication, the only stat that really might make a difference would be your total sales numbers. How many books have you sold? But even then, it, it's not like it comes up as much as you might think. We don't start conversations with, hey, pal, do you sell any books today? Because that's weird. What we want to look at instead are just, how is the book? And no amount of stat, no amount of, well, I have an algorithm that X, Y, Z. No amount of that's going to qualify good writing because interpreting art and reading writing and consuming books and imagining stuff is subjective. And you can't apply an AI to that. You can't apply machine learning because it doesn't matter. Because machines, as far as we know, lack imagination. They need data and parameters in order to operate, whereas imagination can be unbound. I can start talking about one thing and you can start imagining a completely disconnected, separate thing because I said a word like, I don't know, lollipop. And you might think of literal candy, but you might also think about you know, the World War II program, Operation Lollipop, where uh, there was an attempt to kill Hitler by poisoning the food supply in Germany. Who knows? Imagination is like that. It's okay. You don't need to know stats. This isn't like fantasy football. We don't give a shit if chapter 10 is 12 words longer than chapter 15. We don't care if the sex scene at page 100 is 31% more vivid than the sex scene two chapters later. It doesn't matter. No one cares. We can just move on with our day. Stats aren't for art. Like, do you care the number of brushstrokes in Starry Night? Do you care about, like, the number of left-curving sweeps happen in the Sistine Chapel sailing? Like, does that, does that, does that do anything other than make you go, oh, not really. Cause there's nothing to it. There's no point. There should not be stats for art. Just go make art. On we go. Question. I have a typo in this question. How dare I? Question nine. How hard is it to pivot my writing platform? Not plat from John. How hard is it to pivot my writing platform if I change genre? My question, I'm going to meet this question with a question. Why do you have to change your platform? I don't know if you mean like I have to stop using this social media platform and go use another website. Or if you mean like the way you use it. Because you're still selling books. At least I presume you are. It's just that instead of writing science fiction, you're writing fantasy. Or instead of writing fantasy, you're writing 
comedic memoir or you're writing uh, whatever the hell you're writing. Why would you have to change anything other than the thing you're talking about? You don't need to pivot every time. It's not like you broke up with somebody and now you can no longer go to certain restaurants or something. Or like, like you lost those things in the divorce. It's, it doesn't work like that. You can just change genres and offer different things from the same platform all the time. Because the platform, although it is owned by a mega corporation that is intent on your constant attention and, you know, ad revenue, um, the platform is yours within reason to use as you like. So if you want to talk about book A, then also move to, hey, you know what? Fuck book A. We're going over here to book B. Do that. No one's going to be mad. I mean, somebody might bring up, hey, you haven't talked about your Western before in a while. Like, what's up? Okay, cool. But now I'm writing, you know, horror novels. So we're doing horror. You don't have to pivot that hard. And even if you feel like you need to, the amount of change, the amount of, uh, what's the word I want to use? alteration, I guess, is minimal. Just talk about a different thing. You can still talk about it in the same way. It's not like I'm now writing thriller novels, so I have to sound like a completely different person. That's weird and unnecessary. Don't do that. Just talk about something else. It's okay. It's all good. Good question. Shall we go? Any more questions from anybody here? My phone is blowing up. I want to make sure I didn't miss any questions or if it's just like stuff. Do, do, do. Anybody, anything? If not, we'll just keep on moving and it's totally okay. Cool. Nothing, nothing real big here. Let me just go over here and check this. Onward. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let's go. Cool. Cool. Onward. Question 10. How are my book for sale posts? That's a post where you're selling a book. How are my book for sales, also called BFSs, which is a stupid name I didn't name. How are my book for sale posts supposed to gain any in? Oh, I'm going to puke. Any engagement, I feel it rising in my chest right now. Any engagement on a social media platform that isn't business focused. I'm just going to like gag repeatedly into this trash can because that is a, that is a businessy question that I don't care for. Okay. Let's address the use of jargon here because ugh. how are your book for sale posts supposed to gain any engage? First of all, can we not just call it engagement? Can we just ask, can we just say what this question's asking? Why aren't more people paying attention to me cuz social media isn't talking about me? Here here's here's all right, look. Look. Hang on. Where's my um where's my thing? I have a sound effect for this. Where where the fuck is it? Over here. Oh. We're going to have some gentle advice. I'm bringing gentle advice back. Gentle advice. Please get your head out of your ass. 
Social media is a number of things for a number of people. Some people use it as a place to find community. Some people find it for a place to do business. Some people find it for a place to shit post. Some people use it to go look at naked people. Some people use it to talk to their friends. Some people use it for a combination of all of those things. Some people just use it to get informed about the world. What happens in the hashtag writing community? Oh shit, we're bringing everything back. What happens in the hashtag writing community is that too often people, <clears throat> white ladies, fall into a pattern of constantly selling their drivel and feeling like all they need to do is just toss the breadcrumbs out to the plebes and then everything's going to be okay. And they get plenty of engagement. I wish I had an echo function, but you can't do an echo function on a Mac. Uh, plenty of engagement for things because they're getting a response that pats them on the head like a reverse Pavlov. I say a thing and you jump through my hoop and then we all feel good about it. Um, but because social media is more than your platform and more than your space and you, the white lady, are, you know, more, uh, maybe not the majority, maybe you're just one people among many and you have to not necessarily compete because there's no competition, but you know, sit alongside people who are having anything from an existential crisis to like a stupid fucking pun contest. Um, you can't guarantee engagement for your book for sale posts because that's a dumb way of interfacing with social media. Be a person. And if some people are going to hang out and be like, oh, you're cool. Let me go see what you got. Cool then do that. And if it takes longer than just being a sales robot, I'm so sorry, but that's life. You don't need the platform to be business focused, or if you really want to go be business focused, go move to a platform that is business focused and let everybody else who wants to talk about butts or dicks or something or feet or minis or D and D or soup or whatever the hell else, Go let them go talk about whatever. It's not hurting you. But this question sounds petulant. This question sounds like you're clutching some pearls over the fact that, oh my God, my stuff's getting lost in the shuffle and I'm no longer special. Well, you weren't that special to begin with. It's just that you fell into a little bubble in an echo chamber where everybody told you you were special. I hate to tell you this. You're not special. You're just another person. And social media is for well, I don't know if you know this, the social, it's, it's a big space to do lots of things, get over yourself. And if they get traction, great. If they get, you know, numbers and people click things, awesome. I'm happy for you. That's wonderful. Good for you. But if they don't find a different way to do it, change your pitch, maybe change the platform you use, maybe read the room and realize that if, you know, everybody's just hanging out, shit talking, I don't know, Reagan, then maybe you stopping and talking about your romance novel with, you know, Dash uh, Thompson and his stupid bullshit um, isn't really the place in the middle of the discussion when we're talking about a war criminal. Who knows? But just, you know, you're not special. I don't know what makes a post gain engagement anymore. Social media is fractured. How about you just hang out and have a cookie? It'll be fine. 
And if you really want all business all the time, go to that space. You'll still have the same complaint because you won't be special there either, but at least all the business stuff will be in one spot. Okay. Okay. Question 11, man, these later questions I had forgotten. I, I post, I, I put this together like days ago. I had forgotten some of this stuff. Question 11. I'm having trouble getting an agent, a pimp. I'm having trouble getting a pimp. Okay. What are three things I should be taking a look at to improve my chances of getting someone who will take 10 to 20% of my money? What are, what are three things I should be taking a look at to improve my chances at being exploited? Okay. I can totally answer this question. We don't need gentle advice. Um, here we go. Three things. One, are you pitching to them in a way that appeals to them? Like if they say they're looking for, let me think of something really, really like straightforward. They're looking for something that uh, speaks to generational trauma. Are you sure your story has generational trauma? Because they're asking for a thing. They are telling you, hey, if you have this thing, I am more likely to read your stuff. If you are not giving them that thing, why are you, why are you querying them? It, it takes a little couple extra minutes. You got to Google some stuff or read some social media, but, um, like, what are you doing? If you're not giving them what they're asking for, why, why would you expect them to have a positive response? If I go to a store and I'm like, Hey, could I get a pound of American cheese? And they hand me a quarter pound, uh, roast beef. Um, I'm, I'm, it's not what I want. I want what I want. And I asked for it and I told you what I wanted. Why are you not giving me what I want? So that's the first thing. Make sure that you are giving them what they're looking for because they're basically wanting stuff. They'll, they'll tell you it's not that hard. Just figure it out and make sure your story has the thing. Second thing you can look at is your query too long. Now it's obvious that if your query is like multiple pages, when you print it out, yep, that sucker's too long, but it could also be, you know, within the parameter of up to 275 words and still be too long. Are you taking a while and beating around the bush? Do you need someone to go take a look at your query and poke it with a sharp stick and tell you what's working and what's not working? Is your query too long, too cumbersome, too slow, too sluggish, too vague, too something that's making it hard for the pimp to figure out whether or not they're going to take 10 to 20% of your future income? If, by the way, you need someone to go poke your query with a sharp stick, johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com. Click that button, book an appointment. I'll be happy to take my sharpest of sticks and help make your query the best it's ever been. But yeah, if your query's disorganized, vague, bland, super going to make a difference. And if you're querying the wrong person for the wrong thing, they want cheese and you're handing them meat. and it's all over the place. It's a mess. Of course, they're not going to say yes. Third thing. Are you positively sure, positively sure that the themes you're mentioning your book has are actually in your book? Now, I've talked about this the other day to somebody and they weren't sure their writing had a theme. Now, just so we're clear, hang on, just so we're clear, 
your writing, whatever your book is, I don't care what genre it is, your writing needs a theme. Let's say that one more time. You need a theme in what you are writing, at least one, maybe two. I wouldn't do more than three because one or two is fine, but you need to know what they are. You need to be able to identify them. You need to be able to take a look at it and go, because of this arc, because of this plot, because of the way this character is or how they become or what goes on, this lesson, this life idea, this concept, this this societal issue, this this viewpoint I have about, I don't know, prison abolition comes across. Those are themes. Your story needs them. We often shorthand this unfairly to your book has to say something, which is not entirely limited to theme, but theme is a big part of that. But if you can't find your theme and it's okay if like every other fantasy novel right now, you have a theme of found family. It's not the end of the world. It's just <sighs> fine, more of the same, but you at least need a theme. You need to be able to identify them and you need to be able to look at your manuscript and go, this, this arc, this scene, this chapter, this climax, these pieces, this, 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 and this, whatever pieces in whatever order, those are my points for a theme. This is my evidence. You need to be able to identify your themes. You need one, two's better, two's plenty, but you need themes. Your query needs to be better organized and structured, and it needs to be what the person is looking for. Usually those three things will significantly improve your chances. But uh, I myself am not a pimp. I am not looking to exploit anyone. I am not looking to wedge myself into a parasitic relationship and then suddenly claim that I'm making your work better. So um, I can't say for certain that these will guarantee success. But I can tell you that it, this stuff will make a difference. Good question. I'm so sorry you're getting traditionally published. On we go. Question 12. How early is too early to start setting up a plot twist? There is no too early. There's no too early at all. You can do it from the first sentence. There is a too late, and that's usually right before the plot twist. Like, plot twists like plants need to be grown and developed over time. They need to be planted and watered and tended, and then they'll develop later on. But there is no too early. You could do it from sentence one. It just depends on what the twist is, how big a deal it is to the story, and how complicated or how much torsion, how much twist you're putting on your plot twist. The more complicated it is, uh, and I don't mean complicated like look at all the people involved. I mean complicated like you got to take a hot second to sit down and figure it out. We're not talking like I have a twin brother. We're talking like. Um, Bruce Willis has been dead this whole time. Significant plot twist. You want to set those, the, the more substantial it is, the more, the more you're aiming for a holy shit moment. Holy shit. He's been dead this whole time. Wow. The bigger impact you're looking to have, the earlier you should set it up or at least start setting it up. Early is better than late. The later you start setting it up, the less impact that twist is going to have. And just so we're clear, a twist isn't a twist if it's just a reveal. Like if we don't mention the entire time that, uh, you know, that joke about how like the doctor can't operate on their son because it's the mother. 
Like that's not a twist. That's just, that's just a set. That's just a reveal. Twists take information and challenge it, subvert it, affect it in some way. We see a thing and have an expectation in one direction. A twist changes that direction and plays on our expectation. It's a subversion. Whereas a reveal is just, here's a thing I didn't know that now I know. Twists matter. Reveals are pretty standard. But it's never too early. And in fact, earlier is better than later. Good question. On we go. Question 13. Pack this stuff up. Question 13. Is follow for follow a bad strategy to grow an audience? If you don't know what follow for follow is, it's the idea that um, if I follow you on social media or whatever platform, you are somehow obligated through social contract to follow me. I follow you, you follow me. Bing, bang, boom. That's it. Is that a bad way to grow an audience? Yes. Why? Because it doesn't actually grow an audience. It just makes a number go up. It makes the, the follower count or the, 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 the notification pile go up. And that number is not the same as an audience. That number is just a number. The audience are the number of active people. So for instance, right now, let me just double check before I open my mouth. There's, I think, one or two people here right now. They would be my audience. But if you go look at the number of people who follow this Twitch channel, it's well over two. I think it's in the 50s. That, that doesn't make them my audience. Not all 50 people show up every time I'm like, hey, I'm streaming. Sometimes two, sometimes four, sometimes six. One time there was 16. It was rad as fuck. But follow for follow just makes a number go up. It is not a way to grow an audience because you can't always guarantee all those people will show up every time. Follow for follow or, and then uh, there's usually the second half of follow for follow is follow for follow, then follow solicitation, which means, hey, you're following me. You have to click this link which is not so much an incentive as it is a threat. And that's not going to help you grow an audience either because you never want to get into a situation where you bully your audience into engagement. Follow for follow is a bad strategy because your numbers go up, so what? That doesn't actually mean you're helping give them what they want, which is honestly, as a creator, a fear a lot of people have. I have, you know, over... 2,500 followers, I think on Twitter still, for some reason, um, what I post on there, whenever I do does not appeal to all 2,500 of them. I know it doesn't. Some of them are people I've known for 20 years and I'm on Twitter mainly just to make sure they're not dead. Or there are some people, uh, who I follow, who I entirely follow because they make things I like that are totally different than what I do. Follow for follow does not build an audience. Treating people like people, giving a shit, asking questions, having conversations, seeing how I can connect to them, being vulnerable, being open, expressing yourself, putting your best idea forward as best as possible, as frequently as possible, explaining things, sharing things, those things build an audience. But you just making a number go up and them just making a number go up is not an audience. I saw somebody today on social media 
talk about how uh, if you don't hit a certain number, you're irrelevant. And I thought to myself, here is an example of somebody who's completely missing the point. Because relevance is not rooted in the number. It's the same idea of, and I'm sure you've seen this before, the idea of ratio. This idea of like replies to, to shares, responses to, to interactions that somehow dictate whether the thing being replied to or shared is more valid or less valid because of something. I don't quite understand it, but ratio doesn't work. It's, um, well, it's stupid because if let's say you're making a valid point, like all money is inherently made up and we made up all this bullshit about dollar bills and inflation and we could just skip it. We don't need to behave that way anymore. We could all collectively agree to abandon this idea of currency and just have things be available for humans. I could say that, and let's say, I don't know, 5,000 people could retweet it or reskeet it or share it or whatever platform you want to use. That doesn't mean 5,000 people are going to totally sign up to come to my Patreon and watch movies every week. Uh, it just means I'm going to say a thing. Now, 10,000 people might reply and say like, John, that's a utopic idea, completely illustrative of your naivety about the way the world works. And we can't abandon capitalism because otherwise people will live in absolute panic, even though they swear to be Christian, which is principal tenets are built around compassion and care. But we've decided to assign dollars and, and cents instead of compassion and care. And they don't want to really hear a counter argument to that. But that doesn't make my argument less valid. When we care about ratio, when we care about notifiers, when we care about follower counts, what we're saying is we don't care about what you're saying. We just care that whatever you're saying is either in agreement with what we're saying, or it's so radically not that we can dismiss it. Follow for follow is a bad strategy. It doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't improve the, it doesn't raise the level of discourse. It doesn't make us smarter or make us happier or anything like that. It just is a way to make a number go up on a screen. It's a bad strategy. Please do better. It'll take you longer, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Good question. Okay, before we get out of here, are there any other questions from chat? I'm looking right now at my phone. There are no other DMs, no other pending things. Any other questions else we will get out of here and move on with our day. No, we're good. That was a lot. It was a lot today. I'm thankful. All right, let's get out of here then to the outro. Thank you. Thank you for watching this. Thank you for being here. Thank you for caring. Thank you for asking questions. Thanks for everything. Thanks for letting me talk about follow for following. Thanks for letting me talk about pimps. Thanks for letting me talk about syllable construction and expression of characters. Thanks so much for all of that. Thank you for letting me do this week after week. 
time after time. It means really, really so much to me. I, I love it like the most mostest. It makes me deeply happy. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. The next time I'm here, I'm honestly thinking about doing some other workshop. Maybe not this week, but maybe, maybe Monday the 21st. Uh, I haven't quite sorted out a topic, but I certainly would love to. Um, but the next time I'm here for the writer's chat will be right next week on August the 22nd at 1 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much for being here. To me, all power to all people. Take care of yourself and do good things in the world. And you're allowed to be happy. You know that you're really, truly allowed to be happy. Um, please don't, please don't discount yourself. If you feel alone, please know that you're not alone. And if you're feeling lost, you can always get help. If you like this show and you want to support more things like it, go to patreon.com slash John helps you write better. If you want an appointment to get your stuff individually and personally edited, coached, helped, assisted, or whatever, go to John helps and click the button. You can't miss it. I will talk to you in the very, very near future in your eyes and in your ears one more time later. Thanks so much for being here. Talk to you soon. See ya.